0: So the United States has two geographic parts, the places our economy and culture tell us to get out of, and the places we're told to seek in order to make it. But I think there's a shift going on beneath the surface of our national story. It's a return to, or a refusal to leave, the least glamorous corners of this country. I'm talking about the small towns, rural lands, working-class communities that national headlines say are dying in order to fight for the place that feels like home. I'm Sarah Smarsh, and this is The Homecomers.
1: I was with a forester in Alabama a couple of months ago, and he uses drones to look for wild hogs. So we were at night with this drone looking for wild hogs. While he actually had Goody Mob, which is a a rap group, playing in the background, I said, oh, my God, this is the black belt, the 21st century black belt, where you can have the culture and traditions of the past, but you have technology that can assist you in, in being successful. And we've got to connect the young people with that vision.
0: Dr. Veronica Womack is a political scientist who lives and works in the Black Belt. That's a crescent-shaped region of the rural South that stretches from Virginia to Texas with a large African-American population. It's been described as America's third world. But that region's history, people, and land contain a richness that Womack's work as professor and advocate reveals. Womack's research has informed policymakers at the United Nations. It's been published in the Harvard Journal of African-American Public Policy, and has helped secure federal funding to research the rural South. Her book, Abandonment in Dixie, provides a deep analysis of the Black Belt region, and her community work helps shape a path forward for rural African-Americans whose relationship to the land has been harmed by racist policies and the generational effects of their ancestors' enslavement. Womack spoke with me during the spring of 2019 from Macon, Georgia, near her home in Milledgeville. So I'd like to start with the same question that, I'm, that I ask all my guests to kick off these conversations. How would you describe the class background of your life?
1: I would describe my class background as working poor. I grew up in a, a single parent household with a very loving mother. And I had the awesome experience of meeting one of my great grandparents and my grandparents and you know cousins and all of, of that that comes with rural life. Everybody worked, everybody worked very hard some people with two jobs, you know, and then they did things on the weekend to supplement their income, but everybody was, was still poor. So I consider myself to be someone who has experienced poverty within our society and understand that poverty does not necessarily mean that you're, you're not trying. hmm
0: And the place where that coming of age took place, correct me if I'm wrong, is Greenville, Alabama. Is that right?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Greenville, Alabama, which is located in Butler County, Alabama, within the Alabama Black Belt.
0: Got it. I was looking up Greenville today and and I saw population is a little over 8,000 and I was just kind of looking at Google Maps. There's a Cracker Barrel and a Walmart, yes. you know, Um and <laughs> we're uh, known
1: for the Bates House of Turkey. Okay, uh, And <laughs> Most people that come through there, they'll stop for gas and get a get a turkey sandwich. But they've expanded some of the restaurants. And so now we have a, a bigger offering.
0: When you were a kid there, when was that exactly? And, and if you could just tell me kind of what, what that place was like for you growing up.
1: I was born in 1969 and I grew up in the 70s. And um, early 80s in, in Greenville. And it was a small town where most people knew each other. You know, you didn't have a lot of people that moved in. Folk were very hardworking, as I've, I've stated. Uh, religion was a big part of, of of my life growing up, as well as most people in Greenville. That was very important. Civic duty in various aspects was also a big part of Greenville, giving back to community, making sure that you take care of people that needed help. Uh, And so I grew up watching people who may not have been wealthy give what they had to help other people. My mother was a nurse, and a lot of the women in my family You know, they were nurses or they um, worked in some kind of capacity in helping people. Mm. So I spent a lot of my Saturdays uh, going around the community, picking up medicine for for the elders. My mother and grandmother would sometimes go and take care of people. Some of my older relatives lived with us at some point if they were sick. And so I was socialized to, to really help people. You know, if you have a lot, if you're not willing to share it and work for the betterment of the community, then, you know, why even have it? Mm-hmm. So I went to public school. We had, of course, a, a still a dual school system where we had the public school system and then the segregation academies. And I had a, a wonderful time in high school, went through high school and then was off to, to see the world. But my, my life was grounded in family. Uh, you know, rich traditions, great food, mm-hmm. <laughs> fresh food at that. Although when my grandfather would come with the bushels of peas for us to to shell, that wasn't the highlight <laughs> of my life. <laughs> right. When you're
0: a kid, you're not into no. that. Was your grandfather um, a farmer? Did he live in a more rural spot? Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Both grandparents actually, both grandfathers farmed. And so I had access to fresh fruits and vegetables and fresh, you know, meat my whole life. I, you know, remember being with my grandfathers and always just watching them work in the field. And that that really inspired me because it showed me Mm. self-sufficiency, you know, that you could if you had land, if you had property, you could really take care of yourself Uh, because, you know, you could throw something in the ground and it would grow uh you know so they had chickens and hogs and cows goats uh and so it was just it was it was a really rich rural upbringing
0: and and now you went on to uh The University of Alabama, correct me if I'm wrong, for for all of your studies, um, including your PhD, and and I was seeing that's about 45 miles away from those family farms of yours. So you kind of you stayed pretty close to home, and I was just wondering uh, if you could reflect on on why that might be.
1: Well, you know, I was raised with a, a single mother, and so my siblings were still at home, and I wanted to be close to home. I always thought I would live in Alabama for my entire life. Also, logistics were a part of my conversation because being a rural family, transportation was an issue. So, you know, if I were to leave the state and go places, then how would I afford the, you know, the transportation to get back home? Mm -hmm. So that was always on on the front burner as well, being able to travel and be at home when I I needed to be and I felt a very strong you know um connection to my my family and i wanted to be close so i said well you know i'll get all of my degrees here and then i'll stay in the state and and do work
0: in some ways while while you're living in and working in a different state now your your work is sort of a love song to your home as well yes. <laughs> and so, so if we could talk about that work a little bit your um your website i noticed offers three professional titles that you claim which are political scientist Rural researcher and black farmers advocate. And I was thinking, wow, that is a powerful trifecta (laughs) in that it contains intersections of America that the the prevailing notions, that, which are usually written, by the way, by, I would say, affluent urban white people would have us believe are separate. So you would you'd think from headlines, for example, that all black Americans live in urban areas or you'd think that all rural farmers are white and you're validating a more complicated truth as a researcher and an advocate. So I, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the path that led you to weave these three different professional strands into this multifaceted career you've got?
1: Growing up, I was very fortunate to spend a lot of time with my great-grandfather, Papa, and my grandfather. And I noticed one day we were at the drugstore and Papa had gone in to get his medication, but he really wasn't interested in me sticking around while he made the transaction. And you know, me being young and, and the candy is on the counter, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't going to be pushed aside. But he signed his his bill with an X. And at that moment, that was the first time I realized that he couldn't read. And that always perplexed me and it bothered me because he was a very intelligent man and he he was proud. I don't know if he didn't want me to know or whatever, but that stuck with me. And then with my other grandparents, I learned that they didn't have schools. One was able to go, I think, to the fifth grade or fourth grade, and the other was seven. And so I asked them about that one day, and my grandfather got into a conversation about certain people in the community were able to shut down schools to make sure that the cotton was picked, right? Mm -hmm. So their ability to get an education was often dependent on someone else saying that they could have that. So that stuck in my mind. And then when I got to the University of Alabama, I started to take classes with people who uh, had not had my lived experience that had very strong opinions about poor people, about rural people, about poor rural Black people, and I knew that I was different. Uh, I had—I was telling a crowd the other day. You know, when you're at the University of Alabama in the 80s and 90s, and you're driving a 77 Thunderbird, listening to Tyrone Davis, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you realize that not everybody has had that experience. So in those classes. Questions would pop up in my mind about how is all of this fitting together? So how do you come to the University of Alabama and you have, you know, such an extensive wardrobe that you have to go to a store and buy a rolling closet? Right. Mm. Uh, Because that's what I saw in the dormitories. How is this possible? Because in my community, the people that I knew that I went to school with, white or black, We're not in that economic situation. So all of these questions resulted in me wanting to provide some answers. And to be honest with you, having several conversations in the classroom with people who had very different ideas about people who were working poor Mm. uh, and their abilities, and also there was conversations in most classrooms about people are where they are because lack of motivation, and I knew that wasn't true because I knew the people in my community worked very, very hard. And our community was hit early on with you know manufacturing jobs moving overseas. And so many of the people that I knew that had worked in those factories were finding it very difficult to transition into this, what we call now, knowledge-based economy. I didn't know what it was called then, but I knew that they weren't able to, to get employment. And so all of these experiences as a young person, I made it a point in my mind that I was going to do something about it. Initially, I thought I would be a lobbyist because that's what I heard lobbyists, they could do that. They could influence policy. So I went into communications.
0: And then how do you see that that ended up circling back to an emphasis on on rural specifically?
1: Well, once I started to get into my degree program, Although I was in communications, I had a professor that was a political scientist, Dr. Karen Carty, and she piqued my interest because she helped me formulate discussions on persuasion. Right. So her focus was kind of, you know, political persuasion. So that opened my eyes and piqued me a little bit. And then uh, the university hired Dr. Milkar Shabazz, who was the first director of the African-American studies program at Alabama. So I started taking courses with him, with Rose Gladney over in the American studies department. And I started to read and I realized that there were people who were researching these things that perplexed me. So I took a course with uh, Dr. Norell, who spoke to the civil rights movement in Tuskegee, Alabama. And I said, man, all of these things that I'm reading, a lot of this happened in communities just like mine. Mm. So I continued to read. I read uh, V.O. Key and Southern Politics, and boy, everything just started to, to come together. And I started to realize that part of The issues that were impacting my community was because people didn't see it as a distinct entity, right? So Greenville was just Greenville. Mm -hmm. But once I started reading and learning that, no, this is a complex region and what's happening in Greenville is happening in other rural places. And so it was just a combination of lived experience, being exposed, you know, to literature and exposed to information that resulted in me pulling rural into this because it, it wasn't necessarily rural classes at the time. Right. What I was reading made it very clear that A, many of the people that wrote it didn't know anything about, you know, rural places. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Or, you know, the voice was completely missing. You know, there was no rural voice at the table. Mm. And one day I was in a class, uh, we were talking about urban policies. And so I asked about, well, what about the Black Belt? And the professor said, well, really, there's nothing that can be done for the Black Belt. We just need to give, you know, people a one-way Greyhound bus ticket out. So Mm -hmm. that kind of, that angered me. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to prove him wrong. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I really enjoyed my experience at Alabama because it opened up the world to me.
0: Yeah. And let me ask you this, you know, when when you were in that classroom and the professor made the comment about nothing can be done, we ought to get Mm -hmm. them a ticket out as Mm -hmm. though that's a Grand gesture. That's like a prevailing story that's that's given to yes. rural communities all over this country. Get out. How do they get, get out? out. Just get yeah. out. Just leave.
1: I was very upset about that because he didn't know Greenville. He didn't know the people that I I grew up with and the richness of, of their life and their life experience, right? So you're looking at data without context. Yes. But I know the context. I know the story behind the data. And so it made me realize it was an epiphany. I said, you know what, we've really got to tell our story because the prevailing narrative is not correct. And so I got really determined then that I think I'll be able to, to, to do something about folk thinking that there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot there. And so let's change the paradigm Mm. so that when they're making decisions, those decisions are based on correct information. Mm.
0: And you provide a lot of correct information in your book, Abandonment in Dixie, that looks Mm -hmm. at the Black Belt region. So let's talk about that and let's talk about that place. First of all, how would you define the Black Belt region for people who might not uh, have the right information?
1: The Black Belt region is a rural Uh, crescent-shaped collection of counties that's very rich in history. Geographically, it would be considered the old Confederate South. It is traditionally agriculturally based. It has a significant population of African Americans. For example, right now, the African American population is a little over 13 percent nationally. Some of those counties have up to 70 or 80 percent African-American population. So clearly the history of those places, you know, is still living today in those geographic locations. Also, when that region transitioned from an agriculturally based economy, it transitioned to a low-skill, low-wage manufacturing economy. So again, People were able to, you know, be successful or live with their hands and education was not necessary, but that started to change. And so at this point, when you look at data, the Black Belt has, you know, some deficiencies that we need to address as a society, but I'd also tell people that you won't find a a region in the country where people are more caring, more focused on tradition, on sustaining this culture that includes rich food and being gracious to people. It's quite a a unique place.
0: Mm. You know, I think sometimes about that, the irony of having grown up in a, a very different rural area, but, but one that has a, a similarity I hear when you speak is that there's this kind of paradox where even though there's fewer people and maybe more distance between people in a rural mm-hmm. stretch of land, that actually engenders a closeness and an interdependency that might yeah. not exist in a densely populated apartment building in the middle of New York City. You know what I mean?
1: Most definitely. Most definitely. And and it it creates opportunities for you to not only learn about people, but you're you're connected to them in your ability to help. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I grew up, there was a lot of sharing, a lot of outreach. You know, people didn't die alone. That's just not how, you know, people lived in the black belt. You were connected through your church family or through the Masons or the Eastern Stars or your sorority or whatever, you were connected to your community and people knew what was happening with, with each other and that they were there also to support. Mm.
0: You use the word frequently, and, and in fact, in uh, in the subtitle of your book, Underdevelopment Development in the Black Belt, you use this term under development where I think a lot of others mm-hmm. would would go to the Um, easy phrase, Mm. poverty stricken or or something like that. And I'm wondering, what does that word mean to you, that word choice of yours? And what, what kind of positive power does that hold in this discussion?
1: Underdevelopment means that you have a region, you have people in the region who have assets, whose communities are rich in many factors but those factors have not been mined, right? So this is not a barren place. This place has significant resources already. The rich history, the willingness of the people to work. When you look at the Black Belt region, you know, people have always worked. So coming to a policy-making discussion with the myth that you're dealing with people who don't want to work is counter to what the what the history says mm-hmm. and what the history is yes. and what the present is. And so when we're talking about rural places, rural people, regardless of if you're talking about the Midwest or the Black Belt or the Appalachian region, these are regions that have often suffered from the extraction of their resources, not from a lack of people working or motivation. <laughs> that mm-hmm. that's counter to what is really happening. And so I'm hoping when we talk about underdevelopment, we're talking about coming back to the discussion of what can we do to move the region forward and at the center of that are the assets that we already have.
0: Mm. You know, when, when you're talking about extraction, one thing that I recall from your book that that kind of dovetails with that concept, that the matter of the of the land and who owns it, for those people to to not own the land that they mm-hmm. that they are working is a it sort of severs a, a loop of you know what should be coming back to them in the form of reward. So I wonder if you talk a little bit about that specific to your region and, and, and mm-hmm. rural African Americans, how how that mm-hmm. legacy shaped the history and, and where it echoes today in, in politics and policy.
1: Well there's a very unique history there because you have Black people that have always worked the land and had a connection, a very strong connection to that land since we, you know, we arrived here and have, for the most part, worked that land without reaping the benefits of the harvest that they've worked. After enslavement, that was the first thing that African Americans identified you know, after freedom that they wanted was land. And the reason for that was because they knew that in the Black Belt, in the South, land was the currency. If you didn't have land in an agricultural economy, you were going to be stuck in that persistent, impoverished, dependent status. And so, you know, many of them worked in various capacities, whether sharecropping or leasing land or whatever with the hopes of getting their own land and many of them were successful but those that were not able to acquire land that was very difficult because you're in an agricultural economy and you're locked in right and so land has been the core of all things black belt in the past and today Even during the civil rights movement, African-American farmers and landowners were critical because when people were forced off of of the plantations for wanting to, you know, register to vote or speaking out against inhumanity, it was the, the Black landowners, the Black farmers, that were able to take those people in. So our connection to that land runs as deep as our experience here.
0: So this maybe brings us to talking about black farmers today and black land ownership mm-hmm. today. You founded the Black Farmers Network to kind of advocate for that community in the Black Belt region. And I wanted to share some USDA numbers. These are from 2012, their Census of Agriculture in 2012 there were almost 45,000 black farmers in the country. Incredibly, to my mind and maybe we can get into this in a moment, that number's up 12% since 2007. So in 5 years that group jumps by 12%. And and then here's was relevant to your home, 90% of them are in 12 southern states. This is again uh, this point almost a decade ago, but but at the time a collective 33,300 or so farms sold. 846 million dollars in agricultural products and operated a cumulative 3.6 million acres. And so now that group accounts for just 1.4% of the United States 3.2 million farmers but but those numbers are are sizable and they really they yeah. tell a story that that we don't hear yeah. very often. So I'm yes. I'd love to know what you see yes. in your work in the community. What is the black farmer's experience today in the Black Belt? I know that you said in terms of what's being raised there it's goats beef poultry soybeans sugarcane produce it's <laughs> it's just this this beautifully
1: fertile place Yes I actually am very excited about what's going on right now but I'm also concerned I'm very happy that we have you know over 3 million acres but if you look back in history that's down from our peak era in 1910 when we had 15 million acres. So we're seeing a changing of the generational guard as it relates to African-American farmers. I think recently there has been a resurface of understanding the independence that comes with farming and that farming is no longer just row cropping, right? So that's one of the reasons that I'm excited about the Black Farmers Network is because we're really trying to show what farming is now and what African-American farmers are doing now, that they're not sharecropping, right? Because a lot of people, in their mind, they have this fixed image of what the, the rural South is, who African-Americans are in the rural South, and what their connection to agriculture is— And that's not the experience that these farmers are are having now. I see very motivated, determined farmers who, for the most part, many of them are getting older. And so there is a need for us to connect them with young people who may be interested in in agriculture and farming. That's Mm -hmm. very, very important, is that we marry the two. And in order to bring in young people— You've got to be connected to the Internet. In, in some communities in the Black Belt, that's still a challenge. So if we can't get Internet access, the likelihood of us being able to be in the global economy is going to be very slim. Mm. So building that infrastructure of the Black Belt is very necessary. We also need 21st century schools. You know, we need 21st century technology we need to be developed in order to be competitive. We're on an uneven playing field here because, in the agricultural and manufacturing economy, we were equipped for those economies. We were developed for that. And we've got to get developed to be able to compete in the global economy. Mm. The
0: piece of that I want to go back to first is the generational factor. I want to share quickly a a story um, of of one of those guys. From you share his story at uh, the Black Farmers Network website. um, Mm -hmm. Howard James of Jibs Vineyard in 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 South Georgia. So he's got a thousand acres there. He's quite successful with his produce, and he's got this quote in that story, as long as there is light, I'm going to keep working. I love what I do and could never see myself doing anything else. And he reflects on this piece that you're getting out of how do we now shift into the modern age and connect generations. And he says, one of the greatest things we can share is what we're able to pass on. When our Mm -hmm. ancestors pass something on to us, and if you're able to Hold on to it, then sell it to your own, which means it remains in that culture. Mm-hmm. And and he goes mm-hmm. on to talk about young folks who it, it sounds like he encourages through um, visits by students. He says... If you really want to encourage young folk to get back to the land, they need to be made partners. You start them small and help them grow into the business so one day they can own it with confidence. And so you have been an educator for over 20 years, and you right now are teaching a generation who grew up with the, the digital age and the social media and this, at least as a... As, as a global phenomenon. Now, whether they've been able to access it in their own lives and growing up in terms of the digital divide is another question. But with their framework for reality and the current global economy hinging so much uh, as it does on those technological advances, what do you see in that younger generation and what do they need and how do they connect with both somebody with the wisdom like Mr. James a- and with this um, global 21st
1: century thing we've got going on this generation I am looking for great things they are very vocal about their needs their desires they're very frugal in where they want to place their resources they're very independent and so for this particular generation of people agriculture fits very well with their need for independence and for them to be the leaders of their life. I think that the piece that has been difficult is showing them that this is an option, right? That you can be successful and not leave home. That you can be the captain of your own ship and your own destiny through agriculture and having land. And so I definitely agree that we've got to have some intentional activities. One of the things that we've got to do is show them what agriculture is. If, if, if they don't know agriculture, they haven't been around it for a long time because we stayed there, we didn't go great geographic distances, you had some connection to your family land, right? Mm. So grandmother may have been on the land and that was great-grandmother's parents' land and then you grew up on the land. So my, my mother's generation still remember being there. Some of my generation, we remember, but that next generation, they're not as connected. Mm. And so if we don't show them possibilities that they can have with this land, then they start looking at the land as well. This is nothing more than something I've got to pay property taxes on. Mm. How do we make sure that they know that this is an option? And so being on social media so that they can see farmers, they can connect with farmers and be able to ask, you know, questions. That's very, very, very important for this generation of, of, of people. Just simply having an avenue where we can connect young people with people who have wisdom and knowledge about this, I was in a with a a forester in Alabama a couple of months ago, and he uses drones to look for wild hogs, so we were in, in at night with this this drone looking for wild hogs. While he actually had Goody Mob, which is a, a rap group, playing in the background, I said, oh, my God, this is the black belt, the 21st century black belt, where you can have the culture and traditions of the past, but you have technology that can assist you in, in being successful. And we've got to to connect the young people with that vision.
0: You recently told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about the young entrepreneurs that are starting to take up that mantle. You said, quote, it's a coming home. And mm-hmm. and that struck me because as you're describing this, um, the current young generation, for some of them, they might not readily perceive it as home or they might mm-hmm. not. I'm just wondering what you meant by that, and is is the coming home, is it literal, is it metaphorical, is it all the above? Are they conscious that that's what's happening, or is it your understanding of history that allows you to make that assessment?
1: I think it's my understanding of history, and that it may not necessarily be them coming to their ancestral home, mm. but it's them coming to their collective home, home which allows them to be who they they truly are, and be free. So it's kind of a a circle. When our ancestors were made free, land was their pursuit. And so I think for these young people who are looking to go back into agriculture, they're searching for the freedom to be who they are and to live their lives and be able to do what they want to do uh, with their time. So when I say they're coming home, they've come to the realization that perhaps this is the vehicle that I can use to be free. I learned from your
0: book, actually, what what you're saying reminds me of this, that that the very term for the region black belt derived originally from that fertile dark soil and then it Mm. came to refer to the people Mm. of that Mm -hmm. place what significance do you see there in in that sort of um you know there's a you've got this phrase that's talking about the color of the earth and also the color of the people there's something kind of profound about that
1: yes at that time the land was very fertile and black and rich and then you know black bodies were brought to work that land and so for so many generations black people have been connected to that soil even today and young people are beginning to to reconnect to that cycle of life, really, because that's what it is. Mm.
0: What does it mean to you as a Native daughter of that region to, to witness those changes and, and that, that sort of full circle you're describing about the, the young generation?
1: It makes me very hopeful because this young generation is very innovative. And if given the opportunity to come home and go into some of these rural places... The sky is the limit as to what they they'll they'll produce and be able to do there. They've just got to be connected to having access to land, be connected to people who are knowledgeable who can assist them along the way, and then you know it's vice versa because they're bringing skills that we we don't have, and so oftentimes we think that the young people are just going to learn from the elders, but the elders can also learn learn from them. Mm. I. I Think about some of the young people I work with. They have to still help me with, you know, my phone sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, they're bringing these amazing skills of technology. Can you imagine if that is married with wisdom of how things grow and the best plants for this particular soil? I mean, everything from a rebirth of Southern cuisine to how we we worship. All of these things could be amazing.
0: There are resources available and there are incredible people doing amazing things. The Federation of Southern Co-ops, Georgia Farm Bureau, National Black Farmers Association, The Southwest Georgia Project, National Sustainable Ag Coalition, is it enough? And what do we need to do right now at the level of both culture and politics to make more of those full circle moments for for young folks who want to come home, as you say?
1: It's wonderful, but it's not enough. Many of those organizations need additional resources Uh, They need resources that don't have strings attached. One of the things that we know as academics is that when you write a grant, that grant has parameters. And so often many of the organizations that work in the Black Belt are constantly having to chase grants in order to stay afloat. Well, that takes away from being able to actually implement the work, right? Uh, And so we need more resources so that they can do the work in the way that is unique to the region that they're trying to serve. We also need policy to marry the idea that these organizations need support. So if we're serious about developing the Black Belt, then we've got to have a more cohesive approach where... We feed the people that are doing the work and that have been doing the work for a long time and know how to do the work. So in my mind, the Black Farmers Network is not something that will be competing with any of those organizations. Because what we've got to do is to create an environment where people are working collectively uh, and supporting each other collectively. And that, that was the whole vision for this network is for people to know that these organizations are out there, that they can get help and that also policymakers know that these organizations are working very hard and that maybe we want to ensure that they're well-resourced. Also we have not added the historically black colleges and universities, but they, they do fabulous work. Uh, I was at Fort Valley state university a couple of weeks ago uh, interviewing uh, graduate and undergraduate students of agriculture, and they just shared their tremendous experience at that institution and the support that they're getting. Uh, So making sure also that our HBCUs are funded in a way that they can continue to build the black belt leaders of the future, something they've been doing for for quite some time. And uh, in in my role uh, at, at Georgia College, Many of our students are not from rural areas, but I can do my part to make sure that they know about rural areas so that when they go back to urban areas as leaders and policymakers, that they understand this region better
0: kind of a a bridge crossing I guess between in some ways between kind of two realms that that we think of in some ways as two different worlds um, here in the U.S. but of course they're deeply connected for folks who who would read a headline you know maybe in the Washington Post that says let's give up on these places rural's dead and here's why that's okay what would you say to those folks
1: I would say to those folks that you don't know the black belt (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that the things that you keep building, we already have. You meet and you try to carve out a little green space so that you can take your dog or, you know, you can run in this little small space. In our communities, we don't have to to make those. <laughs> They're already there. Uh, you know, when you talk about creating organizations and urban spaces to build community, You don't have to tell people in rural places how to build community. We already know that. That's already innate. And we could feed our cities if we planned our spaces. So I I would say don't give up on places that you are not knowledgeable about. Take the time to look at those places, not the deficits of those places, but what are some of the assets of those places, and change that narrative, because their narrative is not true.
0: Dr. Veronica Womack is a professor of political science and public administration at Georgia College and State University, where she also serves as chief diversity officer. She's founder of the Black Farmers Network and author of the 2013 book Abandonment in Dixie Under Development in the Black Belt. The Homecomers production team is audio editor Jesse Brenneman in Montana. Composer Daniel Hart in California by way of Texas, web designer Tamika Pittman in New York by way of Colorado, illustrator Angie Pickman in Kansas, and communications manager Kendra Bozarth in New York by way of Kansas. I'm your host and executive producer, Sarah Smarsh in Kansas. So to hear more episodes, access Spanish translations, and get more info about this show, go to thehomecomers.org. And visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to tell us your homecomer story. Thank you to Wes Jackson, co-founder of the Land Institute in rural Kansas, for his blessing to use a term he coined, homecomers, for the title of this show. And special thanks this episode to Georgia Public Broadcasting Station WMUM in Macon, Georgia, and to public radio station KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. The Homecomers is an independent production of Free State Media. It was produced and created with support from the Ford Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard University.